Hello everyone and uh, welcome to my final Advent Tuesday devotional uh, where we uh, go into more depth from Sunday's sermon um, with some, I don't know, more, more devotional thoughts and then Mark leads us in prayer tomorrow and Will uh, will have some applications for us on Thursday and, and this is the last one because as you know Advent is about to give way to Christmas. Strange setting this time. Uh, sorry for that. I actually just got done recording uh, my talks for a, a virtual conference that I'm going to be. I spoke, supposed to be speaking at a conference that had to get canceled, so I, I recorded um, I recorded those talks. And I thought while I was here with the recording equipment, I'd go ahead and record this. Um, I want to, uh, we talked last, last Sunday, we talked about... Um, this idea of what the advents of Jesus meant as they, as they pertain to reconciling us back to the presence of God. We talked about our need for God that was compromised uh, with the fall, but with the first coming of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus made reconciliation to God possible, and with the return of Jesus, return of, um, the, of Emmanuel, God with us will be a permanent reality for all eternity. And if you remember, uh, we spent some time indulging the dream of what that would be like. Today I want to take that indulgence even further. Um, I want to indulge that hope just a little bit more. What is waiting for us in our reunion with our God? Well, there's many things, but there's one ultimate thing that I want to explore together. Um, a couple weeks ago, I used C.S. Lewis. If you remember, I used his screw tape letters. And I want to return again to his thoughts today, this time from his brilliant essay, The Weight of Glory. Now, this ex essay um, has actually been popularized quite a bit by John Piper. If you're familiar with John Piper's writing um, or teaching, you know he loves to uh, quote from Weight of Glory, especially when he's explaining his uh, doctrine of Christian hedonism, that, that we were created for joy and that ultimately we find our joy in God. A lot of the stuff that I was saying on Sunday. And, and what Piper loves to quote is, is that quote in Weight of Glory that I'm going to probably, I don't have it before me, but I might butcher it a bit. But essentially, Lewis uh, rightfully says, it would seem that our God finds our desires not too uh, strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted children uh, fooling around with mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. And so Piper loves to quote that quote, and it's an incredible quote to talk about what, we, what, what we're doing in life is like we're sinners messing around with um, mud pies um, of our sins and our idols because we cannot imagine what the holiday at the sea, what a vacation at the sea is like. We're far too easily pleased. And that holiday at the sea, that pleasure that we are made for, is of course found in God. But when you read the actual essay, C.S. Lewis is actually more specific than that. Our pleasure, um, our ultimate joy that we were created for, Westminster Confession, um, Westminster Catechism, question one, was the chief end of man. Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So even Westminster echoes this Christian hedonism idea that we are made to find our joy in God. But Lewis takes it further, and I think rightfully so. Not just God, but specifically God's approval. Here's what I want to do. 
I want to go slowly through a portion of this essay, The Weight of Glory, and slowly because uh, it is a little bit of a dense essay as some of Lewis's writings are. I want to, I want to walk us slowly through um, uh, the famous portion of this essay where he, he explains what he means by weight of glory, and I want to unpack it for us as I do, do so that we can discover what is the actual reward, the actual glory that is waiting for us when we are finally reunited with the God for whom we are made. So let me just start reading Lewis, and I'll pause throughout and explain what he means. This is what he says. Next, I turn to the idea of glory. So he's, he's taking us through his experience with understanding the meaning of glory. Next, I turn to the idea of glory. There is no getting away from the fact that this idea is very prominent in the New Testament and in early Christian writings. Salvation is constantly associated with palms and crowns and, and white robes and thrones and splendor like the sun and stars. Lewis says, all this makes no immediate appeal to me at all. And in that respect, I fancy I am a typical modern. I mean, I'm not really, um, I'm not really sure what to do with this idea of glory. He says, glory suggests to me fame. And the desire for fame appears to me to be a competitive passion and therefore a hell rather than a heaven. So Lewis is saying, when I think of glory, I think of fame, of wanting to be famous. And to me, that seems like a sinful competitive passion that we should not indulge. To, if, 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 um, if heaven means that we will be glorious, that seems like hell, not heaven. He said, I turn next to the, um, he says, excuse me, he says, but when I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christian writers as Milton John Johnson and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory, quite frankly, in the sense of fame. Meaning when they talked about glory, heavenly glory, they talked about it in the words of fame. But, and here's the key, not fame conferred by our fellow creatures. Meaning, not that we'll be famous in comparison to everybody else, that's the way we typically think of fame, but instead, fame with God. Approval, or might I say, appreciation by God. Here's what Lewis discovered. We will be famous. That is the destiny. That is the destiny of every believer in Christ. You are going to be famous. You're going to be glorious, but not fame with fellow creatures, but with God. He continues on. And then when I had thought that over, I saw that this view was scriptural. With that, a good deal of what I've been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. So what he's doing is, he, what he's saying is he had epiphany when it comes to the idea of fame and glory. Here's what he says. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. He's saying, Jesus said, Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, you cannot enter heaven unless you enter like a child. And then Lewis says, and what I noticed in every child is this great pleasure in being praised. And you know this. All of us know this. My, my kids 
um, constant, Daddy, look at me, look at me, look at me do this, look at me do this. Constantly praising them, constantly telling, awesome man, I'm so proud of you. Every child wants to be praised, and we're fine with that. We never look at a child who says, Daddy, look at me, and says, man, you're arrogant. You just want to be famous. No, no, no. We're fine with it, and we see it as beautiful and admirable in the child. <laughs> then Lewis says this, this is so Lewis, not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. <laughs> Meaning a dog loves to please its master, a horse loves to please its master. And that's true, my dog wakes up and all day, every day, she wants my praise and affirmation. So this is what he says, apparently, what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the, the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, the specific pleasure of the inferior. This is, this is powerful. He's saying, I missed it. I missed it. What I thought was humility was not humility at all. In fact, what humility is, the most, the most purest form of humility, the most childlike form of humility, the, is that creaturely pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a, he says, the pleasure of a dog before man, a child before its father, a pupil before its teacher, a creature before its creator. The most humble, childlike disposition of all is that pleasure of the inferior finding the approval of the superior. Lewis goes on, he qualifies it. He says, I'm not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is, is paraded in our human ambitions or how quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it is my duty to please turns into a deadly poison of self-admiration. So here's what he's saying, listen, we're sinners. We screw up this noble desire to be praised rightly and we seek it in um, wrong, deadly poison of self-admiration. And what he's saying is what we do is we pervert this. And the way that we pervert this is that we want to be praised as the superior not approved as the inferior, meaning we want to be the one on top giving out the praise that everyone else is looking to for affirmation and praise. We inverse that relationship with God. But then he says this, but I did think that I detected a moment, a very, very short moment before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that it is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul beyond all hope and nearly belief learns at last that she has pleased the God for whom she was created to please. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I had a moment. It was a short, brief moment where I got praise right, where I saw how pure it was for me to seek the praise of those whom I ought to seek it from. And then I raised my thoughts to the idea of what might happen when my redeemed soul, beyond all hope and belief, learns at last that I have pleased God for whom I was created to please. He says, in the end, that face, meaning the face of God, 
which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. That's what he's saying. Judgment means we all must face the face of our ultimate superior. And either that face will confer glory upon us inexpressible or inflict a shame that can never be cured. Lewis says, I read in the periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. It is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. It is written that we shall stand before him. We shall appear. We shall be, ex we shall be inspected. What's going to matter is his opinion of us, not our opinion of him. Meaning he doesn't stand before us and ask, what do you think of me? We will stand before him and, and find out what he thinks of us. We're the ones who are going to get examined by God, not the other way around. Here's what he says. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. So that's a huge caveat there, okay? Um, he's grounding this in the gospel of Jesus. He's saying, listen, the only way we could ever please God, the only way we could ever stand before the face of God and God be happy with what he finds is because of Jesus. We will be righteous in Christ. He will look upon us as he looks upon his son, whom he declared, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Lewis is admitting this is only possible because of the work of Christ. But this is what he says. The promise of glory is the promise that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination. More so, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. What a, what a statement to bring pleasure to God, to be a real part of what makes the Trinity happy. To be loved by God, not merely pitied. That's what we think is going to happen. We think God's going to have pity on us and let us into heaven. No, no, no. Not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. Lewis says, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is true. That's where he gets the weight of glory. He's, seeing, he's saying, this seems impossible, that I will actually please my God, not just merely be pitied by him, but I will be a part of the divine happiness that seems like a weight of glory which thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Friends, it's not just that we will be reunited with God, like we talked about on Sunday. When it happens, we will see it in His face as a child sees it in a father's face. We will hear it in His words as a child delights to hear it in a mother's words. We will see it, we will hear it, that He is proud of us, that He delights in us, that He takes pleasure in us. We will make God happy. I want to suggest 
that that innocent childlike disposition that we see in our children and we all had at one time that daddy look at me mommy look at me praise me praise me admire me tell me I'm something special tell me you're proud of me I want to suggest that we never grow out of that we never grow out of that we are seeking after that affirmation the entirety of our lives and one day it will finally and forever be satisfied. When Jesus returns and he ushers us into God's presence and we discover that God does see us, God is proud of us, God does smile over us, and finally that childhood longing for the affirmation of the superior will be forever satisfied. That is the weight of glory that is waiting for us all. Not just that you get God, as glorious as it is, but that God is happy with what he has. Indeed, that he is pleased with what he has. Amen. All right, uh, please join us. You'll be getting a link. If you don't have a link, we'll paste it. If you're, if you're not on our um, church family, you don't get the emails, we'll be uh, posting a link. Um, on our social media pages. Uh, join us for Christmas Eve service. Uh, we, we've put a lot of work into the recording. I think you're really gonna be blessed by it. I have really enjoyed these Advent devotionals. Thanks so much for uh, watching in. Love you all and Merry Christmas to you all. Thanks.